A reading from Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are beneficial. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is meant not for fornication, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Should I therefore take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that whoever is united to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For it is said, the two shall become one flesh. But anyone united to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Shun fornication. Every sin that a person commits is outside the body, but the fornicator sins against the body itself. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, which you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. This is the word of the Lord. Our gospel reading this morning is from Matthew. Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Matthew. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. He fasted 40 days and 40 nights, and afterwards he was famished. The tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, One does not live by bread alone but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and placed him on the pinnacle of the temple and said, saying to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, again, it is written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And he said to, them, to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away with you, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Then the devil left him, and suddenly angels came and waited on him. This is the gospel of the Lord. Let's uh, pray together. Father in heaven, we ask that as we think on these uh, texts of scripture, um, that you'd help us to know how we might be a community that finds encouragement in them and draws strength from them to live as children of God in this world. So help us, we ask in Jesus' name. 
Amen. So uh, during the Lenten season, we're talking about sin. Uh, we're using the seven deadly sins, that those categories, those archetypical sins, archetypes, as a way of sort of thinking about, just with the church historically, how we've thought about the shape of brokenness and sinfulness inside of our own lives. Um, and, uh, and Barbara Brown Taylor, who wrote a book a number of years ago, the title is called Recovering the Lost Language of Sin. She says basically this, just makes this very simple observation that as much as we may not like to talk about sin or sort of to go there in our imaginations, she says, when we abandon the language of sin, it leaves us speechless before realities that the word once described on the one hand. But on the other hand, it, um, it ironically weakens the language of grace, which we all want to run to, right? I mean, I, would, I don't want to have this chat this morning. <laughs> I'd rather us talk about grace, and guess what? We are going to get there. This morning, we're looking at two types of sin, gluttony and lust, and both of these uh, have to do with the body and its desires. And traditionally, it's the appetite for food on the one hand and the appetite for sex on the other hand. And really, it's a misuse of food and sex. Um, so the quotes at the beginning of the bulletin, Frederick Beekner, the novelist, theologian, pastor, says that um, the glutton raids the icebox for a cure for spiritual nutrition. In other words, we misuse food to get at some deeper thing in our lives. Or sex is sinful to the degree that instead of drawing human beings closer together in their humanness, it merely unites bodies but leaves us hungrier and more alone than we felt before. So a misuse of good things that God has given us. So just for example, you're, you have a day. Maybe it was a day like yesterday. Maybe it was a day like one of the days this week. Uh, someone in your office context, maybe it was a roommate. Maybe it was a work context. Maybe it was your neighbor. Maybe it was your spouse or your children did something, lived toward you in a way that tri it triggered you, right? And you know what that means. It means that you all of a sudden felt that disorientation of body and soul. What do you do with that moment? So you get home, you think, there's a, there's a half jar of Talenti in the refrigerator, in the freezer, and you pull it out, and you start, you know, you don't even get a bowl, you just take the spoon, right? We've, I've, I've done that. You've done that. You may do that this afternoon. You know, and maybe it's not Talenti for you. Maybe it's chips, or maybe it, you're, you're a savory person, you know. You, but, but we've all been in those contexts when it's just one more glass of wine, or one more G&T, or one more whiskey, or one more. And we just go on and on and on about the things, the way, what? What are we doing? We're self-soothing, right? I'm, I'm saying, I had a hard day, and this is how I'm going to deal with my hard day. I'm going to self-soothe in this particular way. Maybe it's not food for you, but most likely all of us have indulged that. Maybe it's sex, and so it's the ready availability of pornography that you can just have access to it very quickly. Maybe it's the hookup culture. Maybe it's just some other form of sexual expression outside the context of being a married person. We use the goodness of creation and our own bodies to self-soothe, to reach for things that those things actually don't ultimately fulfill, is to treat good things as if they were ultimate things. Now, I say this without judgment. <laughs> I mean, honestly, and you should hear me saying it without judgment, 
There is no judgment from Tuck Bartholomew this morning on any of these things because the moment you talk, these are low-hanging fruit, right? These are the things that are just like readily available in your world to play with, to self-soothe. And every single person in the room this morning has done that. I don't care how righteous you think you are. We live with the goodness of creation in ways that are just broken. Now, we've all been there. Um, and it's easy for me to look out, right? So Jean-Luc was describing the problem of, of, of urbanization that creates a problem, a chronic problem of poverty that leads to problems of violence and, and, and gang activity and so on and so forth, right? right? We, we sort of can easily sort of, our imaginations can scale out. And so in this case, lust and gluttony, for example, we understand that lust at least fuels a massive sex industry that leaves people in bondage on both sides of it, right? It, it totally does. It leads, on the one hand, individuals that are forced into situations of offering sex, right? Slavery, human slavery, trafficking. We know that word. We condemn that reality, right? On the other hand, it leaves the user, right, of those realities, what? In a place of absolute addiction. They don't know how to get out of the way they've learned to self-soothe and escape the pain and the brokenness and the loneliness and the connection that they want with another human being. Lust, my individual problems, can so easily be mapped out into the world systemically. The way we live individually is deeply connected to the world that we've built out. Lust, gluttony, it's no different. The way I live with food shapes the world that I live in. You've heard the language of food deserts. How does the way we live with food create that? How does the way we live with greed create that? And with so on and so forth. How does the way we live with food create health problems that lead to escalating increases in healthcare costs? I mean, it just, like, you could just have to acknowledge that the way I live individually is not solo, it's not individual, it's collective, it's corporate, it's connected to my neighbor. So I say this as something that we all need to think about, and the moment we start talking about, you know, topics like gluttony or lust, I think we actually really need to be sure that we're pressing the pause button on shame. Because we are broken here, and we have lived in broken ways here, and these are complex, complicated pastoral ethical questions. And we need to be sure that we're hearing things from God, and not our culture, and not just our own sense of guilt or shame or inadequacy that we live with, if you've embraced lies about what it means for you to be a human being. Shame is not something God ever puts on us, ever. Salvation is more than a spiritual wonderland, um, which is part of why it's so wonderful to be in partnership with someone like Jean-Luc in Urban Mosaic, because it reminds us that God cares about this world, real people in this world. So that as you and I wake up to the fact that we're beloved children of God, that maybe the offering that we live with in the world is very different and builds out the kingdom of God in a very different way than we otherwise build things out. So now, here this Corinthian text. 
that we just read is an interesting jumping off point uh, for a conversation about gluttony and lust. And let me just acknowledge a couple things about this particular text. It's a little strange. And you felt that as it was being read. It feels a little bumpy. It feels like I'm not sure I'm tracking with the logic that Paul is, you know, sort of layering into this particular text, right? It sounds strange. It sounds bumpy. But here's something I think we need to remember. Whenever you read, like, a New Testament letter, (laughs) remember it is, hey, a letter. (laughs) And it's a letter to a community that was real people struggling with real problems. So in this particular moment of the first century, this is the Corinthian context. And these folks are trying to figure out, well, so I believe believed in Jesus, what does that mean? Like today and tomorrow when I go to work or when I'm home with my spouse or when I'm talking to my children, what does it mean that I am a follower of Jesus in all these places? In other words, how is my offering in the world going to build out something that's systemically different? (laughs) In other words, do you see the connection? That's really, Paul is not Michael Pollan writing about the ethics of food. Paul is writing a pastoral letter to a community of people that are really clueless about the implications of Jesus in their everyday lives. And that's what he's doing. And so sometimes we jump into these letters and you read things and you're like, it would really be helpful if I knew the other side of the letter, right? If I just knew what was coming at Paul that he's responding to, right? But guess what? I don't, I don't have that. I try to piece that together through reading about Corinthian culture and Roman culture and so on and so forth. So let me illustrate it this way. I'm a pastor. You know that. Um, and one of the things that happens to me in any given week, people come to me and they say, hey, Tuck, could you have a minute for a question? And that happened this week. Uh, and this person, and I said, sure, I was actually on my way to another, another meeting, another setting, and I said, I've got, I've, yes, I've got a minute for your question. And so he pulls me into a room so that it could be a private question, so immediately in my mind I'm thinking, this is not a hallway question, right? This is a private question. So here we are in this private space, and he says, I've got a friend. No, really, I have a friend. So my friend comes home, um, he comes to me, we met up last week, his wife who travels a lot for her business and work came home a few weeks ago and she said, you know, I have, I think I have bisexual feelings and I want, um, I think, I think we need to have an open marriage so that I can explore my feelings. This is not a one minute pastoral question, right? What, he should talk to a counselor. You know, I'm like, what, what, do I, what am I going to say in one minute? All right, do this. How would you begin to engage the very, this is like real, this is real. I'm not making this stuff up. How would you begin to talk to that person? How would you comfort him and remind him that God is real, he's really present to the stuff of his life? How would you maybe give him some tracks to run on as you try to think about when you go home and you talk to your wife tonight, what, what might you say to her? How do you give him some tracks to run? Like, really, how should he live his life in the world in that situation? If, um, if you took that question and you dropped it into this text of 1 Corinthians, if you just sort of said, okay, well, how would the Corinthian context, how would the people of Corinth answer the question? It might go something like this. If you were just living out of the wisdom of Corinth, right? I'm not talking about the church in Corinth. I'm just talking about 
Corinth, right? The Roman world. How would you answer this question? Your answer might go something like this. That might be a viable option. Maybe you should think about that. Because all things are lawful to me. You know that saying. We say that in our culture. All things are lawful. So why don't you just go for it? Or, and if you said, well, okay, I'm a little bit uncomfortable with that. I need a little bit more than all things are lawful. Maybe the next thing you'd do is you'd say this other soundbite that Paul offers us here, you know, that's out of the Corinthian culture, by the way. Most scholars think that Paul is bouncing between Corinthian wisdom and encountering it with the wisdom of Jesus, right? That's what he's doing. So here, here we are. Maybe you'd say, well, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And you're thinking, okay, where are you going with this? Eugene Peterson translated, we live to eat, we eat to live. Um, Basically, what you're telling this person is just desire. Sex is just an appetite. It's like eating. It's like food. Maybe let that wisdom carry you into the conversation you're going to have with your wife. Why don't you do that? If you wanted more, you might keep drifting through this letter, and then there's this other snippet or soundbite out of Corinth, and it's, well, it's just a body. Body's going to die. God's going to destroy both, stomach and the body. Why not just give it a try? Maybe this is a way you can love your wife. How would you answer your friend? So if you're thinking about Philadelphia wisdom, right? You're thinking about United States, Western culture wisdom. What would be the sound bites that you would utilize to help your friend figure out what to do in his marriage. How would you feel if you were that husband? How would you feel if you were that wife? What would be the wisdom that you most naturally would lean into in that space? See, what would feel right to you in that space? And how might Jesus have opinions and thoughts and a way for you to think about this space that would not feel natural. Because it wouldn't. Because you've grown up and you've been formed inside of a context that tells you something very different about the body, about desires, about sex, about marriage, and so on and so forth. Look, a lot of you know that I have sort of dabbled in the world of sociology, and there are persons in this room who are true sociologists, and I won't claim to be that, but I'm enough of one that I have a bias toward uh, nurture over nature. I'm not saying that nature is not important. I'm not saying that our biology and genetic disposition is not important, but I really believe that we are formed social animals. We learn to be human. We learn to interpret desire. We learn to interpret the things that are going on in our world, in our lives. Nature and nurture go hand in hand. There's a synergistic relationship. But what if God in Jesus Christ has entered our world in such a way as to invite us into a different space of nurture? What if he is invited and created a context in which you and I, yes, remedially are learning to be human based out of a relationship of love with him 
and a relationship of love that we have with one another. And so we learn as Christians to offer our lives, ourselves, our bodies, our souls, our gifts, our resources, and I could just keep going on, as a different kind of offering in the world by virtue of this new nurture. You see, Paul's pastoral concern is not with that which the Corinthians felt to be most true or real about their bodies or about sex or about eating. His concern with was how does Jesus change you so that you love to listen to what he has to say? You desire to listen to what he has to say. You learn the concerns that are on his heart. And you want, desire, that which he wants, the kind of kingdom that he wants, because you're living in this world as a beloved son or daughter of, of God. So notice how Paul does this, right? So pragmatically, what does he do? He says this. He says, well, not every choice is a free choice, right? <laughs> right? Some choices that you make in life have a benefit of moving you down the road and trajectory to freedom, and other things actually have unintended consequences that aren't free at all, right? I mean, he basically says not everything is profitable. Not everything is useful. Not everything is moving your life in the same direction. Do you know that? Are you like in the moment of your own life enough to discern that reality? Paul is pushing them to discern that reality. Now, theologically, he does some very interesting things here. Basically, he wants to sort of enlarge their imagination for the way they live with their bodies. I want you to begin to think about your body, your life as a body, as a person with desire, differently, right? Because of your life with Jesus, right? These are things that the Corinthians likely do not see for themselves, and they do not feel as natural because they are previously formed human beings in the Corinthian context. They have learned to be human through some other space of nurture. And Paul wants to call them to something else. So the first thing he says is this. Your body matters to God. Wow. Your body matters to God. Now, how do we know this? We know this because, because of the incarnation. <laughs> Jesus had a body like ours. God himself wrote his story into human history so that he had a body like our body. You know, the, we read the temptation story of Jesus here. He was famished. He was famished. That's the context in which temptation happens to him. Bodily hunger. He had a body like ours. Physicality of the world that God made and the resurrection of Jesus into that world with a body, by the way, minimally reminds us and tells us that God intends to be a God who delights in the physicality of life forever. Salvation is not this weird spiritual neverland. Spirituality is embodied God cares about your body. And that happens, we know this, because of the union that God has with our world and the person of Jesus and the union that Jesus has with us, with our bodies. So Paul says what? Your body belongs to the Lord and the Lord belongs to your body. God raised Jesus' body out of death 
and he will also raise your body out of death. That's a wild promise, but it is a glorious promise. God delights in the physicality of our world. So what does that have to do with sex? Well, last time I checked, sex has to do with body, right? Has to do with real desires that we have inside of our bodies. Paul knew that in his particular context, the Corinthian context, he has some data that we don't know that, that some of the Corinthian men, and certainly many of the Corinthian men, saw prostitutes. This is what they did. Um, and they may have done it in, in a religious context, in a religious setting, before they came into the church. Uh, but they saw prostitutes. They uh, were given free reign inside of Roman culture to act on their desires. Not everyone was. It was not an equal situation, friends, right? Women weren't allowed the same opportunity to enjoy that freedom as men were. Paul knew this was the problem, and so he simply says, um, you don't, don't fornicate. I'm like, we looked this week and we thought, is there any other way for us to translate that word? Because it's not a word we go around using. And the moment you say the word, what does it feel like to you? Well, for me, it feels like old-time religion, like it's a relic of the Christian past. And what in the heck does it mean anyway? And what is he talking about? And let me just sort of distill it this way. This is a word that, you know, you can try to parse it out as, in different contexts in Scripture as you want or in the culture as you want. But the gist of it is this. It is any sexual activity outside of the context of marriage. I mean, that's what it is. If you haven't taken marriage vows and you engage in bodily sexual activity with another person, guess what? Fornication is happening. So why flee that? Why denounce that? Because that, the moment you put it that way, that runs very much against the grain of the culture that has formed who? Us. The reason you flee it, Paul says, is because of the body. This is a theological argument about our union with Jesus. That's what he's talking about. You belong bodily to Jesus. Our union with Christ, there's something real about your life, body and soul, in relation by faith to Jesus that you and I may be completely out of touch with. I don't feel it to be true. I don't understand it because what I feel as true is everything that I've grown up living with in my culture and actually practicing. Habits hold our imagination in certain spaces of life. It's very true for sexuality. Paul is in essence saying there's a spiritual mystery to sex that you may not know about because your body is sacred space. Your body is sacred space. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And all of the bodies around you bear the image and likeness of this same God. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Now, when you got up this morning and you looked in the mirror to get dressed, I think most of you probably did look in the mirror by the looks of you. How did you, how did you think about your body? How would you think about your body? Do you find it hard to accept yourself? 
Do you find yourself thinking, well, so-and-so looks this way, but I don't look that way? How do you look and think about the body that you have? You see, when God looks on you, he says, sacred space, holy space, filled with my spirit. God looks on your body and he delights in you as a human being. He celebrates you. One of my, uh, one of my favorite phrases in the vows at a wedding ceremony is this. It's the vow that a man and woman mutually say to one another. And it's just simply this. It's with all that I am and all that I have, I honor you. There's something that just every time I say that and I'm doing a wedding service, I think, wow. Body and soul, materiality and the interior spaces of ourselves. I honor you with that. Whenever you think, whatever you think about the Christian ethic, and I get that there's restrictions. Whatever you think, the way Christians or the church or we talk about sex or we put restrictions and boundaries around sex, whatever you think about it, it starts there. It begins with God looking on our bodies and saying, I honor you with all that I am and with all that I have. I honor you. And the moment you begin to realize that you're honored by God, how would that change the way you would honor your body and the other bodies that are around you? How would it transform the way you offer yourself out in the world? You see, if the story of Jesus teaches us anything, it is that God honors you. He loves you. He celebrates you. Your whole person, body and soul. Back to Corinth for a moment. In that moment in time, the body life, the bodily life with Christ meant for Paul that he had to remind the men in the Corinthian church to stop using prostitutes. And it's not because here he's concerned about the social inequalities or the injustice that a situation and an economic circumstance of prostitute might entail, but he says, let's start somewhere else. Let's start with the honoring of your body because you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Let's start there and let it ripple out into the culture and change the culture. But let's start with how does God view your body? And that's what he does. And it's not just your body, but what you and I do with our bodies individually is impactful on this body, the community. Because historically, sex has always been one of the primary ways that cultures reinforce their social reality. It's true in Rome. Kyle Harper is a classics professor. I think he's a classics professor at the University of Oklahoma. He wrote a book um, from, called From Shame to Sin. There's an article also in First Things if you want to go look at some of the work that he's done. But he's an academic. He's not writing as a Christian, per se. He doesn't have a particular Christian agenda in his book. He's a historian. He's trying to think about how have... 
how have sexual ethics changed across time and space, right? That's what he's doing. He's trying to write about that reality. And he observes that in a world in which sex was basically seen as an appetite, something to be fulfilled, uh, and something that was utilized by the Roman culture to reinforce a taken-for-granted social order, that the Christian's movement and sexual demands were unusual, they weren't foreseen, they were unusual, and they were actually jolting to the society. So what he says, he writes, sexual, sexual morality would require moral agency for all persons. Do you hear what he's saying? That in the Christian context, you became a person that mattered. He says, Paul's ban on fornication, for example, restricted slave owners, most, uh, their most ordinary prerogatives, sexual access to his slaves. We can trace a drawing awareness in the early church, unlike anything in pagan antiquity, of the sexual integrity of all persons. By the 5th century, Christian emperors were taking proactive measure to protect the bodily integrity of vulnerable women in the society. Do you hear what's happening? The heightened place of sexuality and the overarching structure of morality, the respect for the human dignity of all persons, and the insistence on the value of the transcendent and sacred over the secular and civic, all these, all, these all went, hand in, went hand in hand with the growth of the early Christian culture. It's fascinating. Christianity began to ripple out into the social structure of the world changing rules and laws that meant liberty and freedom for more people. And I just mentioned that because I think in this moment of time when the church is so bombarded with questions about sexual ethics that, by the way, are not one-minute conversations. They are complex. So if you want one of those conversations, I'm glad to have it. But in this time when the church is bombarded to talk about its sexual ethics, to ratify its sexual ethics, to change its sexual ethics, one of the things that you and I need to be so careful of is that we don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. That maybe what Jesus brought into the world was actually good for the world. And maybe we need to think about how we participate in that goodness. Now, what do we do with this? Here's the problem. I need to be changed, and you need to be changed. Because when you came into the church this morning, you have lived in a world that has told you how to be human, and it is contrary in some ways to the way God tells you how to be human. That's just real. But the only way that you and I begin to take up residence in the kingdom of God is through this very simple activity of repentance and faith. And the only way that you and I want to actually engage in the simple activity of repentance and faith in some meaningful way that has real shape and definition because you know what your struggles are in life and you know the way grace needs to be fitted into those struggles is as you get particular and you become honest. And the only way we do that is in an experience of God's love. Otherwise, talking about sin just feels like condemnation, and it just feels like judgment, and it just feels like it isolates us further from ourselves and further from our neighbor and further from God. Your sin 
does not, in Christ, separate you from God. Your sin becomes the context in which you actually begin to wake up to and experience a God who loves you. You. Your real story. Not your imagined self. All right. Some of you have heard this before. About three weeks ago, I had a remarkable experience with a group of men. And I'm like, Stacy does. Tuck's going to cry. Uh, and I won't do that. I'll try not to do that. So I, I saw a spiritual director a number, of, a number of weeks ago, and it was just a remarkable experience. And at the end of this time, talking about my spiritual life, my life story, my understanding of the gospel and the way I embody the gospel in the world and in my everyday life, this guy says to me, I'd like for you to come on this retreat because I think you need to do this. You carry your life and your story in solo. You've read books. You pray prayers. You've seen counselors. You talk with individuals that you select. But you know what, Tuck? You need to be a person in a room with other people experiencing community so that you understand what it means to be seen and loved. And I'm like, really? I want you to come to this retreat because I want you to help lead this retreat with me down the road or be a part of the leadership group. So he knew which button to push, right? Tuck the leader. Yes, I think I can come on your retreat. So I said, sure, I'll do this. I moved some things around the schedule, and I, I go back out to Colorado, and I go on this retreat, and I get in the room, and I had begun to sort of look at the way this retreat was described, and I knew that immediately that the men who were, it was a men's retreat, by the way, I knew that the men that were going to be in that room were largely people that struggle with sexual addiction in some form or fashion. I, I knew that. I was, it's on the website. I could tell. And all of a sudden, I'm like, oh, crap. What have I agreed to be a part of? And this shame, you know, like, I don't want that. I don't, I don't want to get there. I don't want to. This is going to be hard. It's going to be awkward. It's going to be just depressing, you know. And, and so there I am sitting in this room. And these men are filing into the room uh, one by one because that's how we were introduced to this retreat. And I'm sitting there and I thought, 